This morning, it's our great joy to have a guest preacher in Dr. Beck Taylor. He's the president of Whitworth University, and I think there's some graduates and some parents with folks who attend Whitworth out there. We welcome you, and we are connected to Whitworth University over in Spokane by our senior pastor, Dr. Scott Dudley, serving on the board of trustees. Scott is currently in Cambodia on a mission trip, so we will be praying for him as we welcome Beck. Um, Beck has been an economics professor. He's been a fellow at Harvard University. And Whitworth's website claims that if, if you come to Whitworth University, the president will know your name. So yeah. Beck is a very relational guy. Beck, we're so glad that you're with us this morning. Good morning. How is everyone this morning? It's good to see you this morning. Uh, God has already been at work today, uh, last night even. Our Whitworth Pirate basketball team currently ranked number one in the country in NCAA Division III basketball, won their second round playoff game, so they will be happily moving on. And then this morning at 1, 2 o'clock, I was checking the weather to make sure plane flights were on time so that I could board a six o'clock flight this morning to come over and be with you. Uh, I will tell you that Scott McQuilkin, who's also traveling with me today from Whitworth, was ready, he told me, to pick me up at four o'clock this morning and drive me over to the pass so that I could be here with you this morning. <laughs> Praise be to God that he didn't have to do that. Uh, I certainly want to uh, give a warm welcome from Whitworth, particularly for allowing us to borrow your pastor from time to time. Uh, Scott has been a wonderful new trustee for us at the university and uh, just really appreciate your sharing him with us. Uh, now, I also am cognizant that this is perhaps the first time you have asked a trained economist to come and preach to you. <laughs> um, you uh, I'm, I'm honored and you should be uh, congratulated for your courage, I think. Um, I find it somewhat ironic and a little troublesome that perhaps the pulpit is the only credible place now an economist can speak from, so <laughs> um, we'll see. Uh, my uh, introduction to the Whitworth community and the, really the Washington State community has just been incredibly warm. I know this church is so connected to the Whitworth community. You send us your students, many of you are alums. Uh, many of you come in December and hear our uh, choirs sing in this auditorium, in this sanctuary. I was happy to be here with my wife, Julie, not long ago. Uh, Whitworth is, I always feel compelled to mention to groups like this, Whitworth is a Presbyterian university. We are, our mission is to equip our students to honor God, to follow Christ, and to serve humanity. And we do that through a strong and rich and historic covenant relationship with this denomination. So please view Whitworth as a partner with you in ministry, in service, and in education. Well, today our lesson um, comes from 2 Samuel, and it comes from chapters 13 through 18. Now, before you get nervous, no, I'm not going to read all of those chapters. Um, we're going to look today at one of perhaps the darkest days in King David's life, the day he lost his favorite son, Absalom. Now David, as we read, uh, has certainly experienced some dark moments in his life up to this point. Against all odds, David faced down the ridicule of his family and the threat of Goliath. He was pursued by King Saul, 
in the wilderness. He had come to grips with his own sin when he murdered Uriah to cover up his infidelity with Bathsheba. And then he lost his first son that he had with Bathsheba. But the story we look at today may in fact be the darkest time in David's life. And as we will see, it is a tragic ending to a story that could have ended much, much differently. In 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18, we read about David's two sons, Amnon and Absalom, and his daughter Tamar. Absalom and Tamar are brother and sister, and Amnon is half-brother to uh, Absalom and Tamar. We read in chapter 13 that Amnon becomes infatuated in what can only be described as a uh, terrible soap opera. Amnon becomes infatuated with his beautiful, beautiful sister Tamar, and he physically abuses her to the point of rape. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, in the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with his sister Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. 2 Samuel 13, 14 goes on to say, but Amnon refused to listen to Tamar's pleas. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And later on in verses 21 through 22 of chapter 13, when King David heard all of this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to his half-brother Amnon, either good or bad, but Scripture tells us he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. We read Absalom's anger grows more and more intense over a time and eventually he avenges Tamar's rape by killing his half-brother Amnon. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 28 says that Absalom ordered his men, Listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, kill him. Later on in verse 38, after Absalom fled and went to Geshur after he killed his brother, he stayed there, we read, for three years. And we read that the, king, the spirit of King David longed to go to his son Absalom, for he was consoled, we read, concerning Amnon's death. Absalom, we read, flees David's anger over the death of Amnon, and he hides in Geshur for three years. We're told that David longed to go to Absalom in verse 38, but sadly, he didn't go and reconcile with his son. Instead, after a period of time, David is convinced to allow Absalom to come out of hiding. But instead of fully accepting him back into the family, David doesn't allow Absalom even to grace his presence, to come into his company. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 21 says that King David said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. But the king said he must go to his own house he must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. Absalom, we read, uh, stews in his banishment. And his anger against his father David raged. He began to set himself up politically to overthrow his father's kingdom and to kill his father, King David. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 4 says, And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. And later on in chapter 15, verse 10, then Absalom sent secret messages 
throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom is king of Hebron. David, we read, is forced to flee for his life as Absalom conducts a successful coup against his father. Some of David's spies convince Absalom to wait before attacking his father David in the wilderness, which allows David some time to ready his forces for a counterattack against his son Absalom. Finally, when he's ready for the counterattack, David shows great compassion, we read, toward his son Absalom by ordering that he is treated gently. But it's too little and too late as David's commander Joab takes matters into his own hands and we read brutally kills Absalom. 2 Samuel chapter 18 verse 5 says, The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving these orders concerning Absalom to each of his commanders. But Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding on his mule and the mule went under a thick branch of a large oak and Absalom's head got caught in the hair. You see, Absalom was known for having this long mane of hair. So as his mule rides under the tree, his hair gets caught up in the tree and he hangs there. Later on in verses 14 and 15, Joab says, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and he plunged them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive there on the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. When David hears of Absalom's death, he mourns bitterly, heart-wrenchingly. 2 Samuel 18.33, probably the most famous passage out of this text. King David was shaken, we read. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This sad story about the failure of father and son to reconcile and to put past sin and anger aside in order to find new fellowship is even more tragic when we juxtapose it with another familiar story of successful reconciliation between father and son found in the prodigal story, the, son, the uh, prodigal son uh, story. The story of the prodigal son found in Luke 15 is a powerful model, isn't it, of reconciliation. We know from that story that one of two sons asks his father for his share of the family inheritance which is quickly squandered, we read, on sinful living. And coming to his senses, the wayward son decides to throw himself on the mercy of his father. In perhaps one of the most beautiful narratives found in the Bible, and one that represents the amazing love, grace, and forgiveness of our God, the father in the story, even though he had every right to remain bitter and not forgive his son, the father runs, we read, to meet his son on the plane, celebrating his safe return. The son and the father are reconciled and their fellowship is renewed. It is instructive, I think, for us to recognize first that in this story of the prodigal son, reconciliation is brought about first by the act of forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is achieved by overcoming potential feelings of anger, hostility, and hurt. The father of the prodigal son demonstrates amazing forgiveness before he's reconciled to his lost son. Ironically, it's the other brother, right, that we read that can't get past his jealousy and his anger to seek reconciliation with his lost brother. And of course, the parable of the prodigal son foreshadows the ultimate forgiveness that God the Father demonstrates through sending his son Jesus to die for our sins so that we can be reconciled, so that we can have unfettered relationship once again with the Father. So you see, a biblical truth is that forgiveness must precede reconciliation and restoration. Although forgiveness must precede true reconciliation, that is, forgiveness is a necessary condition for true restoration, it's not a sufficient condition. True reconciliation takes forgiveness and confession. There are at least two parties to every conflict, and for a relationship to be fully restored, both forgiveness and confession must occur. Of course, it's the same in our redemptive relationship with Christ, is it not? He extends grace and forgiveness first, and then we confess our sins. Redemption and reconciliation can only occur when they are both present. The prodigal son comes to the point of realizing his wicked ways, we read, and he is ready to confess to his father. That spirit of contrition combined with his father's amazing grace is what leads to redemptive reconciliation. By the way, I love that the father in the story in the parable of the prodigal son runs to meet his son. Um, even before his son has had the chance to express remorse and to confess. So often in our conflicts, we feel like we must first hear confession from others before we can extend forgiveness. But that's not how God has modeled it to us. And after 18 years of marriage to my lovely wife, Julie, those years of marriage have, often, have taught me that often uh, both parties in a conflict must engage in both confession and forgiveness because rarely is just one of the parties exclusively at fault. Unfortunately, we can't always control the actions, attitudes, or behaviors of others. So if we find ourselves in conflict, we are responsible only for our own response, either forgiveness or confession. We are called to act faithfully within the context of relationship, either through confession or forgiveness, regardless of how the other party responds or is expected to respond. So now coming back to the story of David and Absalom, we see that both men engage in sin that prevents true reconciliation. And when forgiveness and grace are finally extended, it's far too late. And it fails to restore their relationship. And of course it ends in sad tragedy. I'm reminded of Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27 that read, In your anger... Do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you and to master you. 
In both of these verses, anger is seen as the root of destructive sin. Anger is described as something that can fester and provide the enemy a foothold to shape our thoughts and our actions. Anger is just the right opportunity for sin to have us. Anger can prevent restorative confession and forgiveness that bring about the reconciliation we seek so desperately in so many of our relationships. In the story of David and Absalom, both men allow anger to rule over them, to have them. Absalom is understandably angry when his half-brother Amnon rapes his sister Tamar. But Absalom's unbridled anger is what leads him to kill Amnon. David is understandably shaken when he hears of Amnon's murder, but it is his unchecked anger that banishes Absalom to Gesher. It is Absalom's anger that festers in Gesher, wondering why his father David hasn't extended a full hand of forgiveness. It is David's anger that grows over Absalom's refusal to confess that he has done an evil thing by killing his half-brother. It is David's anger that causes him to extend a less than full expression of forgiveness and reconciliation when he invites Absalom back to Israel, but doesn't allow his son to have full fellowship with him. It is Absalom's anger over his banishment that causes him to plot to overthrow and kill his father. And it is not until David finally instructs his soldiers to treat Absalom gently and with mercy that it seems David, David's heart is finally coming around. But it's too little and it's too late for his son Absalom. Imagine the difference in the story if upon Absalom's return from Gesher, like the prodigal son returning home, David would have run to meet his son and embraced him and rejoiced in his return. Now, of course, the consequences of sin would have remained. Tamar would have still been gravely injured. Amnon would still be dead. But God could now begin once again to work through the reconciliation of father and son. The story of David and Absalom is of personal significance and importance to me. I'm the product of a broken home. When I was three years old, my father abandoned my mother and me. And for the next 10 years, my mother and I lived in poverty. I struggled as a young boy without a father figure in the home. I struggled with behavioral and emotional problems. I struggled in school. I had to repeat the third grade. In fact, I often say God did a wondrous miracle to put Julie and me together. I had to repeat the third grade. She skipped kindergarten. So <laughs> God's a, a great God. So my life was off to a very, very rocky start. My mother uh, suffered from depression, but worked hard to protect me from the travails of poverty. I experienced two amazing moments of reconciliation in my life, all by the grace of God, but by a grace that was enabled by confession and forgiveness. First, my mother married my stepfather, who adopted me as his own son. That act of love and mercy shown by my stepfather reconciled me to the person I was meant to be, a child of promise and potential. That act of love and kindness dramatically impacted my life. I would not be here today if it weren't for that grace that was extended to me 
by my stepfather. Second, although anger, resentment, embarrassment, and confusion kept my birth father and me apart for 25 years, by God's divine grace and through his ultimate purposes, those feelings were set aside in an amazing act of reconciliation and of restoration. After 25 years apart, when I was 28 years old, my father and I came to know one another again and were reconciled. Although both of us still bear the marks of sin and suffer the consequences of our previous choices, God has turned our willingness to submit ourselves to the reconciliation process into a wonderful love story, one of redemption, one of reconciliation of relationship. For the past 13 years, I have enjoyed what no man should deserve, the unconditional love of three fathers. My stepfather who res rescued me from a life that was not my own, my birth father whom I love dearly, and my heavenly father without whom none of us would have had the strength to lay anger aside and to pursue reconciliation. To God be the glory. In the Whitworth Chapel, some of you have perhaps been there, we have a cross in front of the chapel, just like this cross. Our cross is a little different. The vertical beam of the cross is made of stained glass, and it reflects the light that shines through the window behind the cross. The horizontal beam, however, is made up of the thorns of Christ. And ever since I walked into that chapel, I've reflect upon, reflected upon the meaning of that. Of course, we know it's the cross of Jesus that gives us the opportunity to reconcile with the Father. It's Jesus' sacrifice, his death and ultimate resurrection and victory over sin that allows us to have unfettered relationship with the Father. So beautifully recognized by that seamless stained glass vertical beam of the cross. But it's also the cross of Jesus that allows us to have reconciliation and redemption with one another as well as we fellowship with one another. But I find it interesting that in the Whitworth Chapel, that cross is made up of thorns, indicating to me that those relationships are hard and thorny. But we should have full confidence that by the ultimate work of the cross, God gives us the ability through His Holy Spirit to reconcile not only with Him, but also with one another. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. May it be so for us. Amen.